and welcome back to the DC Yoga Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Parkinson, uh, and today in the studio we have Liz Bernstein. Liz is a devoted student of the Eight Limbs of Yoga. Since 2005, the most important thing yoga has taught her is how to cultivate compassion for herself and others. Over the past 15 years, she has studied numerous styles of asana postures, pranayama, breath control, and dhyana, meditation. This has helped her change the way she approaches all aspects of life. She will always be a student, especially in meditation. She's been studying different types of meditation since 2009 and has a particular soft spot for loving-kindness meditation, which directs positive wishes towards all beings everywhere. She graduated as an economist from Boston University in 2007 with a master's in economics and enjoys cooking, traveling, and hiking. She loves D.C. and is an active volunteer in the community. She draws on three main styles of yoga in her vinyasa classes, Ashtanga, Prana Flow, and Iyengar for Alignment. Her students can expect a dynamic vinyasa-based class with a focus on breath, bandhas, and mindfulness. Yoga needs humor and keeps, and keeps her humble. Losing her balance or focus is a gift, another opportunity to begin again. As her mother used to always say, remember, it's a practice, not a perfect. Welcome to the show, Liz. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me, Chris. This is great. Great. Before we go any further, I do need to do a shout out to producer Panama, who came in today at the last minute and helped me out. I was thank you. I did a, I did a brainless yogi maneuver and scheduling today, so she's been very, very, very great. I'm very, very grateful for her. Um. So yeah. So uh, that was your bio. Yeah. But there's some other stuff to add because that's not all that you do. That's not all. Or Although, that you're interested in. <laughs> right. Although the line from my mom, I mean, I try to tell myself that every day with most things. It's it's not a perfect, right? So I love that. Um, yeah, so most recently it's been more kind of the biomechanics focus. Um, I just finished my 300-hour, which was Mitchell last year, and really gotten interested in most how we apply yoga and really getting more precise with what we're actually saying when we say things and what we actually mean and what we're actually trying to get people to do with their bodies. Um, so more precise with my words, I think just with the knowledge base, but I think most of that bio is still true. (laughs) (laughs) So for a lot of people out there who are probably, uh, have seen what a yoga teacher training program is like a 200 hour They're, I mean, by and large, they're kind of similar. I mean, there are certain fundamentals to teaching yoga that you have to know, you know, whether that's pranayama or meditation or like anatomy and how to do things. But maybe not a lot of people are uh, familiar with the 300 hour teacher training. What's what's so different or what is the what is the point of doing the 300 hour? Like I, I what I assume is that it's a lot different, like depending on which 300 hour program you do rather than the same, sort of similar as the 200 hour program that you do. Yeah, I consider it a specialization um, so for instance, right after I finished my, my first 200 hour actually at flow in 2010, a lot of my friends that were in the program went ahead and did uh, Shiva race 300 hour, the Prana flow modules. And I took a few modules and I was really interested in that style as far as how it felt in my body, but it just didn't resonate with me as far as my teaching style goes. It just seemed very strange to try to teach in those mandalas. And so, you know, it felt like oh, I I need to study more. What am I going to do? All my friends are doing 300 hour, but I I listened to myself and I said not until I really found the right teacher. And I didn't realize it was going to take me nine years (laughs) to find the teacher that I really wanted to study with for my 300 hour, but it did. And I'm really grateful because I was able to make the time, um, you know, things happen for a reason. And whether we get that reason or not, um, I do think that the last nine years of my life, led me to be able to really be prepared for this 300 hour. Um, so yeah, I think it's just when you realize that you want to study more with somebody or about something, it's, it's sort of like graduate school. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's important. Um, I don't know about you, but my 200 hour, I, I was overwhelmed by the anatomy and my book and everything. And I, Megan Davis was, a, a I was a, a great DC yogi was my, my anatomy teacher. And I remember being so nervous and not like feeling, feeling like I was going to fail her test and how am I ever going to know internal from external, you know, with that, with the way the humorous moves and things. And now, um, going back and writing my manual for my 200 hour that I'm leading this summer in Greece, I have to keep reminding myself that I was once overwhelmed with that. And so it's, it's quite awesome now to see what has stuck and what is still unfolding from my first 200 hour. Um, 
it's interesting how, at least in my own experience, um, anatomy, if you're, unless you're truly, truly really good at memorizing things and, and understanding things that way, anatomy is really, really hard for most people. Um, and even if you just memorize it, it still gives you really no idea of how everything moves together. Um, and that for me is something that you only get through, like for me anyway, literally like doing something in your body and going, all right, what muscle is that? And then looking it up and then like figuring out like how it moves and what direction it moves. Or on the other hand, if you have an injury, right, then like, for example, like I know everything about like the back and glute muscles now because of my injuries. Right. Yeah. Um, and that can be another great gift uh, to have an injury so you can learn a lot more about anatomy. Yeah, teachers are definitely injuries, right? We want to bring ourselves out of pain, and that leads to a lot of other things, usually than just that specific spot and tissue damage in the body, right? The biopsychosocial model of pain is becoming the most prominent model, and, and now we realize that tissue damage does not equal pain, and pain does not equal tissue damage, you know? And so I think that's just interesting in and of itself. Uh, we could spend a whole hour <laughs> talking about that, but I won't. Um, but yeah, for me, anatomy was just memorization until I really learned how to apply it. And I don't think that that really happened until the past few years. And then with the training with Jules, it really solidified, um, how unique it is, uh, individual I mean, your shoulders are completely different than mine and your hips and your pelvis are completely different than mine. And I think that that's something that if you're interested in talking about, I would love to talk about. And I think that you know, we as yoga teachers, as movement educators, we need to get better at more um, rep representing the human body a little better. I think that right now we give, you know, cues that are important because we're trying to make certain shapes, but instead of allowing for variation that is due to bones and just general structure of someone's body that we can't change, we kind of make people sometimes feel like, oh, well, eventually you'll get that or oh, well, don't worry that, you know, and it's just sometimes it's just not true. And I think we need to just be more honest with the fact that like bodies are different and what's good for me is not good for you. And it's not just, you know, every asana fits every person. Um, and we can talk more specifically about certain cues and things that, that I feel if that's some, somewhere well, you go ahead. Go. Let's, let's hear a yeah. cue that really drives you crazy. Uh, well, let's be, and let's be honest about cues, right? So like we all have our uh, our favorite yoga teachers, right? Mm -hmm. When we're studying or when we're taking yoga classes and just sort of by osmosis, we pick up their cues without really thinking about them, right? And they make sense to us because we heard the cue and was like, oh, that's so cool. Or maybe like we think the teacher is just really cool and so we just use whatever they say without really thinking about it. So it's not always like this, you know, people are giving bad cues because like they just don't are ignorant if they're giving bad cues just because they picked it up from somebody else and don't understand. Yeah, no, I'm not. Yeah. Please don't think I'm trying to place blame anywhere here. Yeah. I think I, I'm so guilty of it. Are you kidding me? For years, I said things that now I actually out of habit come out of my mouth and I have to correct myself in front of the class. You know, it's mm -hmm. like, no, wait, just kidding. You, I didn't actually mean that. I actually meant this, this and this, you know, and I think some of it comes just from when you only have a certain amount of time to tell people what to do. Um, you're looking for concise ways to say things. And so a lot of the cues that we tend to repeat, there's a reason for them. They're, they're convenient. And for, I would say, in general, they're not harmful, right? They might not be correct, but we're not like we're causing harm with right. it. And so I don't think it's necessarily something that we're going to have to change right away. But I think if you take teaching yoga seriously and movement seriously, then you yourself would want to educate yourself, you know, about what you're actually saying and that, that your words matter. Mm -hmm. Um, so for instance, I think actually there was, I just saw a post about this, um, from uh, a well-known yoga teacher online and she's saying about the knee past the ankle thing. Mm -hmm. So I used to say, don't put your knee past your ankle. That's not good for your knee. Right. Or, or very specific things where I was basically causing my students to be fearful of a movement in their body. And, I was really just repeating what I had learned and what I had thought that, you know, okay, ankle beyond, our knee beyond the ankle is just kind of dangerous and we, and we don't want to load with the body weight in that, in that position of that deep of knee flexion, right? And I, Jules Mitchell actually was one of the first people, um, you know, we were talking about the cue, but I think it was a few years ago, I was at one of her workshops and she looked at me and she said what happens when you go up the stairs Liz and down the stairs and my it really just it opened my eyes to 
okay, why am I saying what I'm saying? And that's really where this whole journey started with me is I wanted to get more precise and more correct. And I wanted to really figure out why I was saying what I was saying. And so now I say knee over ankle because that's the pose I'm teaching. And I, do, I leave out anything else because it's actually, I don't need to fear monger my students. They yeah. shouldn't be afraid of a range of motion. Now, if they feel pain, no matter where their knee is, I want them to back off, right? Or move forward, depending on what, what we're talking about. But mm -hmm. that's definitely one. Um, and I thought it was funny that I just saw it uh, a few days ago on Facebook. Um, I think it was Catherine Vernon Young that, that posted about it. And um, shoulders down and back. Yeah. Yeah, that one. Um, there people, are people loved uh, people love that one. Oh yeah, and no, but I mean, and Len, the other the other half of yoga teachers hate that one right. so much, right? Well, it's it's necessary sometimes, right? Like there are some poses where I'm trying to get you to bring your shoulders down towards your glutes and back towards one another completely. Yes, but not when I'm asking you to raise your arms up over your head. Exactly. Right. And I, for years I said that. And also I said that your shoulders need to be an external rotation in downward facing dog, you know, certain things like that, that I just now actually, the more I know about the shoulder joint, the scapula could be lifted a little, right? Eventually that's, that's where we want to go with that to, to headstand mm -hmm. or handstand. So, so yeah. And I don't think that there's one cue that, you know, I would say, oh my gosh, no one can ever use this. And I think that that's the point is that it's really just about educating ourselves. And then as long as you have a reason for what you're doing and what you're teaching in your classes, then, you know, and the intent is good, then I don't think there's a wrong cue. I think it's when we're just mindlessly repeating things, right? I mean, that's when we get into... Well, you're not really practicing yoga if you're doing right, that, right? Right, yeah. exactly. Um and I'm not a good yoga teacher if I'm doing that. Um, yeah, the one but thing we learn, right? I didn't know. I thought I was an awesome yoga teacher five years ago, right? It's not, and and I'm sure I connected with plenty of students and I made a difference in people's lives. So again, it's not one's good or one's bad. It's just different, you know. Yeah, I um, I more often than not, whenever I give a cue and I say don't do something, I'll then explain why. Like why I'm asking you not to do it, right? Uh, for example, in the classes I've been teaching recently, I'm really trying to get people to decompress their spine in a lot of poses. Um, and so, for an example, doing like triangle or side angle, what I'm really trying to get people to do is hinge right from the hips Find instead the hip of flexion. yeah, instead yeah. of instead of rounding the back to, or the lateral the lateral movement of the spine, get the hip instead of the spine to move. Um, and what I say after that is, you know, it's okay if your spine rounds, that's fine. Like just know that that's not decompressing your spine. That's actually adding compression. So there's, like you said, there's no right or wrong way. It's just that what's your purpose of teaching the pose? And if your purpose of the pose is to keep a long spine, to reverse the effects of gravity and compression, then rounding the spine is going to help, right? The hip is going to help. Now, on the other hand, if you have somebody, if you have a class full of people who have like hip impingement, well, then you don't want to insist that they hinge all the time, like from that hip joint and fuck up their hips a little bit more. Yeah, exactly. So, and also I would even say like what you said about the spine is it depends what part of the spine you're talking about, right? If you're letting uh, the lumbar spine round, that is lengthening, fair. right? So uh, even more of, of an importance that the words matter, right? And so my yoga classes have changed a lot. I mean, the other thing I used to do is I used to give workshops on how to teach teachers how to assist. And now I barely touch my students. It's not because I don't love them the same or that I don't feel like those adjustments feel good. I mean, I know I feel them in my body. They do feel good for the most part. But it's just that now I have so much, so much more ability to show things through skill ideas and towards the beginning of my classes, whether it's a somatic exercise or an actual engagement exercise of the muscle group I'm trying to draw their attention to, that I actually think there's a lot more space when I don't touch students to, to find that within their body and freedom instead of just trying to elicit it. Mm -hmm. And then back to how different we all are, like on our bony structure, something that, that elicits a feeling in me that I'm really attached to, obviously, because I want to offer it to everybody else, it might not do that. It actually might do the opposite, right? So um, I think your teaching should change with what interests you and, and kind of your journey of learning. But at the same time, I think because yoga is now becoming 
not just a mainstream quote unquote exercise, but an actual doctors are starting to just like prescribe it. Actually, Mm -hmm. I think that that is where if you're going to take it that seriously, if you're just going to, if you're going to do something beyond showing up for that hour, hour and 15 minutes and teaching a movement class, if you're going to talk to students after about their hamstring or about things like it's your job to actually be more educated about it. So that's all. And I just think in general, yoga teachers should talk more about this stuff, right? We have a tendency in, and I think in the yoga community to acknowledge things and, and really, um, no wrong or right and, and bow to things. Right. But, but we don't have conversations about it. So that's one of the reasons why I really appreciate this, this podcast. Um, you know, same th- kind of thing is happening with Yoga Alliance, right? Like they 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 put together a huge committee of really amazing, intelligent people and te- yoga teachers and movement educators, and it's just they made that space, but but no one wants to have the hard conversations on the back end. Um, so I think you'll find a lot of yoga instructors have that conversation all the time, <laughs> right? But but why why then why can't we speak it? You know, um, I think. For me, I actually see a, a, an important role for Yoga Alliance if if we want to move towards that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there is something to be said about a certifying agency to make sure that you have practiced and done, an, quote unquote, enough of certain things. But if it's simply turning in a piece of paper and getting somebody to sign something or even the honor system of yourself, um, you would hope that everybody would be reporting what was true, but um, there's just no accountability if you don't do your CEUs. There's no no reason right now Mm -hmm. for Yoga Alliance, you know, but yet I still pay my dues. I still have my ERYT, everything like that. Um, But my hope would be that one day that it's actually a governing... um, and I know it's be careful what you wish for, right? Because if it's not put together the way that I agree with, then I'm then I'm going to be unhappy about that, right? But it's an American's right to complain. Yeah, <laughs> but I do think there needs to be something, right? Like if you're brand new and your doctor tells you, okay, go to yoga, where is a source for for who is for who is going to meet your need? Yeah, fair. You know. Um, yeah, but I mean, we have the same problems with like doctors, right? I mean, if I have a medical problem, then I, how am I going to find out which doctor is awesome, right? I'm probably going to ask friends, like maybe I'll do a Facebook posting or something. Like, how am I going to know which doctor is not, you know, which doctor is going to be good for me? Right. You know, and you can shop around and that's fine. And hopefully people would do that, you know, if they're going to get a recommendation from their doctor to practice yoga. But it's something similar to that. You, know, you just You just can't tell. But I would argue that any doctor that you go to they at least finished school. Oh, sure. Right? And and that if they still have their certification, they've been doing continuing education, right? And so I completely agree but with you But that's my point, is general. that like I've spent the last three years going to doctors giving me the wrong diagnosis for my problems. And Do you like, want to talk they, about that? Because I, I spent five years doing exactly. that. Exactly. So, so in other words, all the education in the world doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get like a doctor who, she, who or she or she knows what they're talking about. But if about. there was a you, system that... Put, was put together kind of like the medical record system that they're trying to do, but that's on the patient side. There was something put together on the doctor side, and I do think like 1-800-DOCTORS and Kaiser per- Permanente, like certain companies are already trying to be kind of a search engine right. for that, you know? And so I think it's just going to take time, right? Especially with that, because it's the technology. I mean, you have some doctors that are amazing, but they're getting ready to retire, and they're not gonna. Why would they even put in the effort to create that or yeah, be well, put on that? Well, let's hope know? we can fix the medical system before we worry about Yoga Alliance. That's more important thing. <laughs> That's I think. true. That's true. Um, so let's go. Let's let's uh, let's return to the beginning. Do you remember? And this is why I always okay. do to all my guests. I always put them on the spot this way. So, do you remember your first yoga class? So that. To be 100% honest, I have to say no, because I do believe one of my good friends, Jessica, she swears that I took a few yoga classes with her at UCF, University of Central Florida. Uh, I thought you were going to say, like, I, I talked to somebody and they swore I took a yoga class, like, back in the 14th century and I'm just uh, being reborn. Oh, wow. You're going to give me the, the yogi answer. Hmm. <laughs> Man, I should have done that. No. Um, so my good friend, uh, who was actually um, just at my wedding and and 
she swears that at UCF in, in Orlando, we, we took cla- a few classes together in 2004. But my first yoga class that I remember um, was actually at Unity Woods. Oh, yeah. Uh, I was at UCF. I lived in Florida my whole life, and I was 19, and I got an internship at the Bureau of Economic Analysis. I was big into economics then and thought that that was um, really what I was going to do with the rest of my life. And so I was a member of the National Association of Business Economists. And I met the um, vice president, actually deputy director of the BEA at the time. And I was 19 and she was impressed with me and, and invited me up for an internship. So who at 19 doesn't want to live for three months in D.C.? Yeah. Um, so I did that, and it just so happened that I rented my apartment on Connecticut Avenue right across from the Unity Woods that doesn't even exist anymore. They gave up that space, mm-hmm. and I looked out the window, and I was like, oh, right. I, I don't know. Something pulled me there, and it was a good thing because I, was, I smoked. Um, I was really overweight, and I just wasn't my best self at all. I mean, what was important to me then was power and money, everything that, you know, I'd been rewarded for in the past, actually, you know, like get better grades, spend more time doing this, this, and this. And so the positive feedback loop kept me on it. And I think it was the first time I really had paused and uh, I walked into that class and it was a good thing it was an Iyengar studio because I was too heavy. I couldn't have done. Mm. If I would have walked into flow and took, taken a a prana flow class, I probably would have never have gone back to yoga, but because it was slow, controlled with belts and blocks, I just, it, it clicked. And that summer, I don't even know how many yoga classes I took, but it was every day, sometimes twice a day. And while you were doing your internship. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So the government, if you do an internship with them, not only do they have to pay you, but they have to give you like no more than 40 hours a week or, you know, so I have to say, if you, if you, in that age, and you're listening, um, there's lots of good opportunities for internships in the government. But anyway, so yeah, with all that, because I couldn't go to happy hour with everybody after. So even though I wanted to, I was 19, you know, so I would go to yoga. Fantastic. Yeah. And so I lost 30 pounds that summer. What? And I quit smoking cigarettes. And I really just, I, I, I actually felt myself internally for the first time, not just on a physical level, like muscles moving, what was engaging, how I could control my body, but I actually, the mind-body connection became really clear. And for the first time, I think I slept really like soundly, you know, and of course I would fall asleep in Shavasana all the time because it was new to me that mm-hmm. you could rest and not sleep, at, you know, and so yeah, so that was it. And then I moved back to Orlando and um, I found Full Circle Yoga, which was an Ashtanga studio, a very serious Ashtanga studio. And Is there any other kind? Right, that's true. <laughs> and um, and I started practicing Ashtanga six days a week for three years. Wow, so you did Mysore. So it was like morning Mysore or was it just... So it started lead. Yeah. And then once a month they would do um, lead secondary. And at, I think, a year maybe... It's when I was encouraged, when I did the whole primary and secondary without mm-hmm. having to stop. That's when I was encouraged. You need to start coming to Mysore, you know. Um, so I did that for a little while. But I have to say, like, even then, the dogma of it was really off-putting. And I, and I stopped. And I went back to, like, lead mm-hmm. primary and lead secondary. Um, the, the summer you were in D.C., did you just go to Unity Woods? Or did you, did you find yourself at other yoga studios? Yeah, no, I just went to Unity Woods because yeah. it was so close. And I was also very... I mean, from where I came from in Florida and everything, like even in even at UCF, I guess where I took these classes, I don't remember. Um, it wasn't really something every like everyone did. Like when I went back and I saw all my friends, like they were all super happy for me because I looked amazing and everything. Right. But at the same time, they were like, "What do you mean you don't want to come out drinking with us because you're going to go to yoga in the morning?" Like it was just strange, you know. And then I couldn't get enough of yoga, and I'd heard good things at the time. It was right before everything broke with him and so I did it even three months of Bikram on top of Ashtanga wow um so can you tell my tendencies am I type a at all (laughs) man yeah the addiction (laughs) is strong huh yeah well yeah I think I you know I got rid of one for something else and I ended up getting hurt of course and tell us about that well I put my right foot on the back of my head when I was standing how old were you I was 22 Mm mm-hmm and 
I couldn't walk really the next morning at all. Well, that's a sign, yeah. Yeah. Um, it hurt after, but not like the next day when I woke up. It was, um, thank goodness, I was only a two-hour drive from my parents. Mm-hmm. And uh, my mom came and, and took me to the doctor and took me to a chiropractor, actually. And still, it's just I have a crushed SI joint on my right side, oh my which God. doesn't even really... Now what I know, what I know about the body doesn't even really make sense. But at the time, that was like my life and my story was this crushed SI joint Mm -hmm. and nothing asymmetrical and, you know, but it really just took a lot of strengthening actually um, in that area. And I still, it still acts up. Like if I do spinning or something very much Mm -hmm. one-sided push or pull, um, I can feel it the next day. But I did learn a lot about how to say no and when to stop and not to just let my ego, because the teacher was encouraging me and it was my ego and it was the combination of both. And so not only did it teach me to stand up for myself to my teacher, but also like really what Ahimsa is, Mm -hmm. right? Um, So around that same time, um, something clicked in me and I moved to Boston for graduate school and... I started doing work study at all in one. And actually that's when I taught my first classes, just when people called out sick and they didn't have an extra teacher. And so I wasn't even certified or anything. It was like 2007 Mm -hmm. and I would stand in and teach. Um, But sometime in graduate school, I really realized like, why is my yoga so type A? This is not serving me. So part of the reason why I wanted to get trained was because I really felt the calling of something else than just the physical asana. I knew every posture there was, I thought at that point, you know, or probably did, but I, it's kind of stopped there. And then the mind body connection and everything, but was there as far as like intuitively knowing, but not the deeper, not, you know, anything past like the fourth limb, if you want to think of them as a ladder, you know, Um, did you, did you find yourself, Wanting to go to yoga because uh, you're super bendy. And so it was something that, you know, you were like, hey, I can do that pose. And like, oh, no problem. I can do that pose and that pose. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we like what we're good at. Mm -hmm. Humans do. I mean, it's not just yogis. It's everybody. Um, And especially if we get rewarded, right? And so um, for me, the reward was teachers wanting to talk to me after class, um, you know, other students wanting to talk to me after class and, and, and just all the ego, you know, Mm -hmm. but, but at the time at 22 to 25, you know, that's when I, especially when I started at 19. Um, yeah, I mean, that was, it was enticing, you know, Mm -hmm. and I think that's, that raises a good point. I mean, I found a, article recently on hypermobility and Pilates and it, if it quoted a study that um, I thought was done pretty well that said that basically we self-select, right? So the general population for hypermobility is only about 30% of us are hypermobile in general, but in a yoga and Pilates classroom, it's more like 70%, mm-hmm. which I also think is important, right? Just more on this education for, for yoga mm-hmm. and movement teachers. When you know that most of your audience probably, or at least, you know, two thirds of it is, has hard time knowing where they are in space, right? Because we lack proprioception um, in in the same amount. Um, Doesn't really, so therefore doesn't really feel things until we get to our end range. And then we're encouraging that end range without muscle engagement in some Mm -hmm. cases around it. Um, Yeah, so I definitely, my experience in the past 15 years has definitely really shaped how I teach now. You know, I think I didn't realize how bendy I was. No one, I thought like it was normal also because everyone else around me and the yoga poses were, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, Yeah. no, that's, I mean, it's, um, it's a really important, uh, I think, uh, point that you've hit on, which is, you know, if 70% of our yoga students are already hypermobile, why are we teaching them stretching? Well, what is right. stretching? Right, exactly. Oh my goodness! You know why are we teaching? Why are we teaching them to to increase their range of motion when they've already got a good range of motion? Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, if you're you know if you see that, then as a yoga as any kind of teacher, you ought to be able to. Well, you can never do this when you first start teaching. It only takes like literally like years of of seeing students to realize um, kind of 
teach to what's in the room rather than just teach a sequence that you have in your mind. Um, and one of the things that you need to do or be able to do is see that your whole class is super mobile, then, all right, well, maybe we don't encourage everybody to go into Bird of Paradise today because maybe that's not what they need. Mm -hmm. Maybe instead what they need to do is practice some dolphin and maybe practice some shoulder stand or practice some, you know, forearm stand or something that's going to increase the strength in their shoulders rather than, you know. Right. Or even Bird of Paradise without the bind. Can sure. you can you hold your leg like that without, you know, your arms in that crazy shape? Yeah. Like, you know, I think part of that, is the active versus the passive, right? So most people, including myself, for years, I went into tree pose as a passive kind of thing. Now I don't let my other foot touch my other leg and I hold it and my hamstring's cramping and mm -hmm. my, my standing leg is tired, but um, because I'm fine at, I'm very, very good at passive stretching. Where I need the work is the, is the strength, is the pullback. And I think that's where, um, unfortunately, more misunderstanding, more miscuing is, is happening around that as well, right? So back to what we already spoke about, I can't, I say it too, like stretch your hamstrings or lengthen your hamstrings, right? Well, you're not picking up your hamstring tendons and moving them in different points on your bone. So you're not changing the length of your hamstring at all. Mm -hmm. But I say it, you know, because I think sometimes there's a need for visualizing things in the body, uh, even if it's absolutely incorrect of what's occurring in the body. Um, and everywhere you're mobile, we would hope that you're stable, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so I think when I, now when I cue things, it's much more about finding the isometric contraction and then moving from there, whether it's concentric or eccentric from there. But, but can you maintain it as you're moving into that shape. And if not, then then your work is actually in the entirety of the range holding that isometric, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and I, I intentionally do poses sometimes there um, that hypermobile people won't feel anything in really if they're just doing it passively. Um, because I swear it's followed that up with is, you know, if you don't feel a stretch here, that probably means you're pretty flexible enough. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, and like then that teaches them hopefully that they can go into the next pose and just find a little bit of a stretch or a little bit of a strength or whatever it is that I'm teaching, a little bit of balance without thinking they need to go to the the hundred percent. Mm-hmm. Like going to sixty percent and trying to breathe at sixty percent is much better than going to a hundred percent and trying to stress yourself out about going deeper and deeper and deeper every fucking time you do the posture. Yeah, and more on that, for someone like me, just going to sixty percent is a whole different type of yoga, mental type of yoga for me. You know what I mean? Sure. Because I want it's to hard do work. everything 100%. Discipline. Right. Well, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So for me, actually, the backing off is part of the work. You know, it's that. Um, and so, you know, I sometimes say in my class, like, if this isn't for you, then this is how you're practicing your yoga today, right? Like, I'm sure people come into my class and they don't want to hear anything else about the lower back or whatever I'm talking about that day. And that's what I tell them. I'm like, okay, so your yoga is how can you stay present and listen to me and, and still find a practice when you're really annoyed right now, mm -hmm. you know? And so when I take classes and I'm being encouraged to end range, it's like in, internally I know, okay, you could do this, but you're just creating more samskara in that, you mm -hmm. know, you need to back off and you need to really do what's right for you. So you um, you graduated from graduate school and you became an economist. Yes. Like that's kind of cool. Like I have lots of friends that are different things, you know, like lawyers or judges or whatever, but I don't know too many economists. So that's just kind of cool. Yeah. Like in a real, you know, dorky DC yeah. way. Yeah. So I actually just got a paper published. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like Very nice. Tell us the title. And I shouldn't say this because really Tina Heifel, my co-author, was the one who updated it and got it published. But it's Disability Adjusted Life Years for 30 Chronic Conditions. So Say that real quick, Panama. <laughs> yeah. I missed it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's dollies, right? So it's on disability adjusted life years. And, and don't worry, you're never going to have to know that ever again. <laughs> um, but what we did basically is we looked at 30 of the most, most prevalent chronic conditions um, in the country. And there's a measure of disability adjusted life years of like what actually 
if you're suffering from diabetes from 60 on, like what is actually the years in your life, right? Right, And so we use that concept to kind of adjust price in- increases. So everyone keeps talking about the price of healthcare going up, but actually in very specific diseases, it's going way down because of outcomes, right? right. Um, so anyway, it, it's cool because I haven't been an economist uh, Monday, April 15th was four years that I left BEA. And it was nice to see a paper I wrote four and a half years ago get published this week, too. It mm-hmm. kind of brought everything full circle. Um, and I loved being an economist for for general, like, love of knowledge. And I did, I actually got a job. I did private consulting for a few months, and I just decided I didn't want to work 70 hours a week. So I moved back from Boston here, actually, to work at the Bureau of Economic Analysis in a different division, but where I interned. And it was I knew I wanted to be back in D.C. I love it here. Um, But I didn't realize, you know, I was going to be right back in the epicenter of where I just, you know, where I had just left. And I think that that was really influential to me to find, to live around the corner from Flow, to still have the Iyengar studio that I, you know, started my real journey at there. And um, when I first started teaching or when I first started decided to get trained, I didn't think I wanted to actually teach, teach. I thought, and so I taught for charity at Whitman Walker. I taught mm-hmm. a class to AIDS patients and stuff like that. Um, and then slowly, you know, you can't unsee. And, and I just started to really realize like, this is not my truth every day when I would go to the office. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, then my mom died at 61 of a heart attack. And that really was, it for me it was because everything was wait you know save money until you have this much money then you can quit and become a yoga teacher or until this happens then you can you know know or you what what is everyone gonna think you went to school for seven years for this and now you're not gonna do it anymore you know um and when something like that happens you just you really realize what's important and so it took me a little while to get my llc soulful elephant yoga up and running and I went part-time at BEA, started picking up classes um, around town, mm-hmm. and and so I made the full switch four years ago, and now I do a lot of other things other than just just that, but I, I look back sometimes just because it would have been really easy to stay an economist, you know, like when I'm mad about how much I'm paying the IRS being an independent contractor or the lack of my salary, and I think about probably what I would be making now. Um, definitely, I do think sometimes like, wow, that was, what were you doing? But I don't ever think of it more than just like a quick, mm-hmm. you know, experiment in, in what if. But then it's pretty much like, oh, right, no, this is because I like, I wake up every day with a smile. And even though I'm stressed about things, there's always, well, usually I'm stressed about things that I shouldn't be, right? Because it doesn't really matter. So that's or really exist, except in your own mind. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, you've done. I mean, you're a full time. You know, let's call you what you are. You're a full time fitness instructor. Um, and how many different studios have you taught at in the city? Oh wow. Because um, I think I think um, among all the guests I've ever had in the show, I think you've probably had the most experience teaching at different studios. Well, except including maybe, Pilates. Studios? Except maybe Mimi. Mimi's taught everywhere. But. Yeah. Um, including Pilates studios, yeah, of course. probably, I don't know, 15, 10 or 15 at yeah. least. Um, especially considering, you know, the Vita locations. I love Vita. They're all different. So mm-hmm. even though like you could say you have Vita, I taught at four of the different locations throughout my career. And even though now I'm only at Navy Yards, um, they all have their own kind of vibe. Uh, and then I actually taught at Washington sports club, two of them for a yeah. little while. Um, that was really important to me. You're not teaching the one in Columbia Heights anymore? I haven't been, you? no, because, you know, they only pay like $30 an hour no matter what. Um, but no, so that's been years. I haven't I haven't taught there because I asked for a raise and they laughed at me and I knew I was worth more than that. So, you know, Fair. and that's something that took a while too, standing up for what you think, you know, especially when you're a new yoga teacher, you just want a job, you mm-hmm. know? And so I took, I think I took $25 for a class a few times, you know? Yeah, even though it was, yeah. Uh, you know, years ago, still $25 for, and the amount of work I was putting in at that time too was because I was so nervous and, mm-hmm. you know, it was, it was even more. And, uh, yeah. So 
it was sad to say goodbye to some of my students that have been coming for years, but you know, you just got to stand up for yourself. And at what point did you kind of realize like, all right, uh, yoga is not gonna pay all my bills and I need to do other things. Or was it more like, all right, I'm going to go fucking crazy if I just teach 20 yoga classes a week and I need to teach something else or maybe some combination thereof. Yeah. All of it. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, so I, I had an interesting thing happen personally when I was making the switch. Um, some of, some of your listeners know, some of your listeners don't. I had a rare brain disease called Cushing's disease, Cushing's disease, and it manifests two different ways. It can manifest on your pituitary gland or on your adrenal glands, and mine was pituitary, hence being in the brain. And um, your cortisol on a normal level should be when you wake up in the morning around 5 and when you go to bed at night around 1. And mine, by the time we found it, it was 120, and it didn't change. Jesus Christ. So I didn't really sleep. Um, I gained about 85 pounds. I lost the hair on my head, but I was growing a beard. I got acne. I got what they call a buffalo hump, which right on the back yeah. of your neck. Um, you know, gained weight in my lower belly from the cortisol. So most of the 85 pounds went right there, which I'm still dealing with, you know. Um, but so it was really hard because when you're so anxious and you have so much anxiety, but also that's your predisposition as well. I mean, not like that was new to me, right? So so I felt that when I was 19, right? Like there was something that brought me into those yoga classes. I knew something wasn't right. I knew I wasn't living my best life. And my anxiety and my fear of succeeding and, and being becoming a, a popular economist and what all, the, all that drove me to it. And so it was really hard when I thought I was making progress on those tendencies and that disease started to manifest and I didn't know it was there. Um, and because it happened right around the same time my mom died, I had a bunch of doctors telling me I was crazy. I needed to go to psychiatrists. Right. And um, they put me on more medicine than I really even think any one person should be on. I think I was on Valium, Xanax, Ambien, Prozac, um, Triazidone to sleep again with the Ambien. I mean, it was ridiculous what they had me on. And I still didn't sleep. So, Oh, yeah, I've been yeah. there. Yeah. I've been on all those things at the same time too. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. Uh, you turn to a junkie. Yeah. But, basically. And, but the thing is they didn't even affect me. So like I didn't, I was still right. teaching hot yoga at 6am and I was still up and at the bar until 2am because I never slept when I, when you have that much cortisol in you, you're, you know, so anyway, I think it was really, I don't know how it would have gone and I can't do that counterfactual, but in my head I was constantly worried about not making it as a yoga teacher not being good enough, not making enough money to sustain the lifestyle that I kind of got used to as an economist. And um, so so it was out of curiosity and the fact that I had seen what Pilates had done for my practice because the tumor we think started around 2012, right around when my mom died. But I started practicing Pilates in 2010 when I started going to flow all the time because mm -hmm. they had fantastic Pilates teachers. I'm sure they still do. But at the time it was... Mariska, who opened up Fuse, mm -hmm. and Callie Griffin, who opened up Fuel, and you know Claire is there, who's mm -hmm. who you had on here, who's still an amazing Pilates and yoga teacher. Um, so I just was surrounded by amazing teachers, and so I really got into Pilates because the strength and that type of slow, mindful control, which I think is sometimes missing in yoga classes, the slowness, you know, so that that the nervous system can really connect what's happening. Um, so that was really beneficial to me. And so I knew I was going to do mat training. Um, and so I did that actually before they even found the tumor. And I was teaching Pilates uh, in 2012 or 2014. And um, after my brain surgery though, so we found the tumor um, actually a few weeks after my dad was diagnosed with stage four esophageal cancer. So it was quite the time in my life. Um, and uh and I had to start, normally you have much longer to prepare than I did because it was already so far advanced and the cortisol was starting to really kill my, my liver and my kidneys. Um, so anyway, I, I had the brain surgery and um, the only thing, you can't do anything at first. They don't even let you carry five pounds. Um, you can't do stairs. So I had to move to Florida for uh, a little while because my house here has stairs. And anyway, you just... 
five pounds is you can't even do a load of laundry. Yeah. You know, I mean, so I, I really, you know, so I, I, I moved back to Florida and so my dad was getting chemo as I was recuperating from, from my surgery. And eventually when I could start to move again, the only thing the doctors would let me do is the reformer. Was a lot reformer. is reformer. Yeah. And it was actually you who we were working out together, I think like September, 2000, probably 15 or 16. I don't know. I think I was back visiting. Couldn't have been 15 because it was only three months after my surgery. So it must've been 16. I must've just moved back. And we were working out on the reformer and, and you said, why don't you get trained? Or you said something like that to me. And I was like, oh yeah, this is, why not? You know, and that, and that's when I actually, so it has only been since, you know, 2016 that I've really been on the apparatus journey with Pilates. But, and I think that's really when my interest and movement shifted. Yeah. To the really anatomy kicked in. Yeah. And and to be more precise with my words because I didn't know any other 33 year olds with osteoporosis. You know, I didn't or arthritis. Right. Or all the things that came from the Cushing's disease. And now all of a sudden I look fine. You know, other than being overweight, I looked fine, you know, but I had so many problems. Yeah. And I feel like sometimes Older adults feel that way, or even people our age, right? Like they they look fine, and especially I know my 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 clients and my friends with neurological things like MS and stuff like from the outside, and now the big thing like is depression. Same thing, right? You can't tell from the outside, mm -hmm. right? Um, mine was obviously there was tons of mental things going on just from the hormone changes and the cortisol changes, but there was a lot of physical stuff too. So so I had it from both ways, and and then that's really when I decided I really liked working with older people. Mm -hmm. because we just treat them like they're kind of supposed to just dry up and, and die. And the body's not like that. It doesn't need to be like that. It's replenishing. It's constantly remodeling itself. If you give it the inputs, it needs to do so. Mm -hmm. um, and I, and I just felt like this is, it's not fair, <laughs> you know, in so many different, different ways. And so, yeah, so that's really what I think what happened to me talking about injuries being a gift in the long run, like, even though I wouldn't ever wish it upon anybody else, the fact that it happened to me and everything I've learned about my, my endocrine system, my nervous system, and my, and my muscular skeletal system since um, really has made me a better movement teacher. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, so I just think that people need more varied movement. People need to do more than one direction as well. Um, so just things that we don't get in a yoga classroom, you know? So it's not that yoga is not amazing. I practice yoga. My yoga now works way different than it did when I was 19, but I still practice it. And I would even argue that all of Pilates is yoga, depending on, you know, I'm sure that that's going to be controversial, but I, I agree. You know, I, I think, I think it is like that. And um, so anyway, I. Well, I, I don't think Joseph Pilates <laughs> made those movements out of thin air. Right. I mean, yeah. When he was in the detainment camp, he was like, "Hmm." Yeah, exactly. How can, like, I, how how can, can I, I flex I, my spine? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I don't think he got it from. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so, so yeah. It's. I just think the emphasis is different than the emphasis in yoga, and I think that that is where. And we could also just stipulate for, just a real quick that, uh, you know, the, Iyengar and you know Patabi Joyce and uh, Krishnamacharya didn't just pull the poses out of anywhere either. Right. Right. And, and neither did, you know, the the European gymnastics system, which is the basis for the modern asana practice. They didn't pull it out of thin air either. Like there's a long history of like move people moving their bodies and yeah. certain ways. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think we forget that the actual physical poses we're doing sometimes like, you know, 1880 to to 1920, you know, is when they were really yeah. became before that yoga was not really about the shapes you took. No. Um, and so. So, yeah, so I think that that's when I really realized, like, how small my movement diet was and what I actually needed, what was good for me. I mean, I was going to the gym before I was doing cardio before. I mean, I used to run. Well, you were lifting weights, too. I yeah, mean, yeah. Yeah. But it's funny what your body does on cortisol for that much. Basically, I was taking, you know, it's the same thing as taking steroids for yeah. four years, like a lot of steroids. So I got really strong. and I had all this stamina, but. Um, certain muscles, the bigger ones get bigger, but the, the important ones that we need for balancing and other stuff, those actually get smaller and deteriorate. So my imbalances were super exacerbated by the steroids, but 
Um, so I was, I was doing that stuff before. Um, but it wasn't really until I started to gain weight from the Cushing's that I started to do that. I didn't know why I was gaining weight, just yoga and walking wasn't really doing it anymore. I thought, oh, maybe my metabolism is slowing. I'm in my mid twenties, you know, that kind of thing. Now I know in retrospect, it was the cortisol, but at the time I just thought, again, more insecurity, who's going to want to, who's going to want to learn yoga for me if I'm so overweight, you know, like, you know, all those things in my head. So I started going to the gym and I started running. I didn't like running when you're jacked up on cortisol, you end up really liking it, actually. Mm-hmm. I could run for miles at a time and not oh even goodness. get tired. Yeah. You know, my, my, my Saturday morning run was 13 miles. Holy and, Moses. And I just, and then I would get up, I would go home, shower, and it, I'd be ready to start my whole day. It wasn't like that was like what I did. That was like 6 a.m. Wow. to 8 a.m. just to get it done, you know, because I was up. So I think that all of that really taught me too much of anything is a bad thing, right? Yeah. And that um, now that I'm so atrophied after two months of no movement, lying flat in a bed, because they cut my um, spinal fluid cord in the second surgery. Well, in the first surgery. So the second surgery, they had to plug it. So then that means you have to lie completely flat, you know, mm-hmm. before I would have been able to like at least sit up and stuff. So you don't do anything for two months and you'd be surprised how quickly your body yeah. decides it doesn't want to cranky. Yeah. When did you, when did you start doing meditation? Well, I'd started meditation, um, you know, basically at, at unity woods. Right. Um, but I wasn't good at it. <laughs> so they actually had a meditation class. I don't remember that, but I do remember they had the half an hour Dharma, um, Dharma talks all the Buddhism coming up, but no, half an hour, like, uh, community meditations, donation based. That's Mm -hmm. the word I was looking for donation, not Dharma. And I would go to a few of those, but, but I just never, the anxiety, everything in me, I, I just never was good at it. So I would, I would sit there and I would try. And for a lot of times it was like, fake it till you make it. I'm just going to do it, you know, but the type of meditation that was being introduced to me just didn't work for me. And it wasn't until I found Tar Brock that I actually really started to practice meditation. And that was Sean Prell, who doesn't live in D.C. anymore. But she was one of my first real yoga teachers that actually really cared about me as a person. And she was an integral part in my teacher training. And she, I forget what I said to her, but the next time I saw her, she handed me radical acceptance. And that that changed my life being introduced to basically the way I think of, of the difference. Um, for me, it's that in Buddhism, we're not trying to change or stop our thoughts. And I think what I'd been always taught about meditation, wrong or right, my, my trying perception, to clear your mind and right. let nothing in. Exactly. Yeah. Just, yeah. Oh no, nothing should be there ever, you know? And actually in Buddhism, it's, it's the opposite. It's like, no, your brain has a job. It's to think just like your heart and your lungs. And, and actually it's about changing your relationship to your thoughts, or your reaction to your right. thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. Reaction, relationship, mm-hmm. whatever. Right. Yeah. And, and so that it, and, and that to me was, just like the aha moment that no, like, yeah, that's, this is an organ. It has a purpose, but you know, it's actually the way you respond and the stories that you tell yourself around what you're thinking. Right. And then that famous Buddhist Buddha quote, like, don't think everything you believe or don't believe your thoughts or whatever. Right. And, and that really resonated with me. Mm -hmm. Um, so then from Tara, uh, the next book she gave me was Pema's when things fall apart because that was when my mom had died and that, you know, that changed everything. And so I, I needed to go study with Pema. So I found, I did a weekend retreat with her and then I found Sharon Salzberg and that's, so that's really where my meditation has kind of completely gone off. And one of the reasons that I justified it at the time to the yoga community, because I really thought, oh my God, this isn't the type of meditation that we generally tend to teach and do in and yoga was the dualist non-dualism. And I know that you've talked to a few different guests about that. And at mm-hmm. the time it was always, it was dualistic, you know, yoga was, and even the sutras, right? What and do you I, mean by that? Well, and the fact that, um, there was a God and there's us Yeah, there. We are something separate. Right. And, and 
so to me, like to my friends who were very much like, you're cheating on the yoga, you know, with the Buddhism, which is just funny now, but at the time it was a serious thing for me. Um, I would say, well, I just don't believe that we're separate from it. And so that, that the non-dualistic approach for Buddhism, that really is, is what shifted me, uh, I think in a, in a more broad sense towards the practices there. Um, the meditation was great, but I think a lot of people do mindfulness meditation and don't go further into the Buddhism. But the, when I was starting to really study that stuff, it really just didn't feel right to me that I was separate from the divine. Um, and Buddhism was giving me a really nice leeway into, um, what I was already feeling. Mm -hmm. So do you have a daily meditation practice? I do. Although it's changes every day. Very nice. Yeah. So I think that I, being so type A and esoteric, I really liked rules and, and making things. And so for a very long time, I saw it every morning, no matter what happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, something burning around you, who cares? <laughs> 10 minutes, you know, 20 right. minutes on that cushion. And and it served me well, I think, for a while, um, especially during the cushings. Because actually now that we know what we know about the brain, I've had a few different neuroscience meditation teachers that I work with, Rick Hansen to be one of them, that uh, told me that the work I was doing in meditation probably saved a lot of my brain function because the fight or flight center with all that cortisol gets magnified, Yeah. right? So if I wasn't doing any meditation during that time, who knows how crazy I would have actually become, right? right? But I actually kept some things firing in the prefrontal cortex and and kept some things weak by by keeping my practice. So... Yeah. So I think, you know, who knows why that was the time in my life where that was what I was able to do. But I do thank myself for for making that. But now it doesn't look like that now. um, Like, for instance, my meditation this morning was outside in the sun because it was a beautiful day and it was a sound meditation, uh, listening to the birds and the cars and everything around me and just really staying present. Can you hear the beginning, middle and end of that sound? Mm -hmm. Um, So there's lots of different types of mindfulness meditation. And now that I'm studying them. I'm in a two-year training with uh, Jack Kornfeld and Tara Brock right now. I'm really getting into a lot of them. Um, so it, it changes. And then meta for me, like you read in my bio, I would say it not, I do do it at least once a week still, just because I think it's a really important practice to develop your compassion. But for a while, it was every day because I didn't like myself. It was really for self-compassion that I was doing that, even mm-hmm. though it was well-wishing and the end result is all beans everywhere. But but the first part where you send well-wishes to yourself, that to me, I sometimes would spend 20 minutes on that and do a few minutes just for everything else because that is where my real work for me is. Yeah, and I know, I know at least myself, the, the thing that I used to think about that was, well, you're just sort of deluding yourself because like you're just trying to convince yourself that everything's good. And like, I, I, you know, when I finally came to the conclusion that, you know, that that's no more fake than, um, you feeling like you're the worst person in the world. Mm, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, so like telling yourself repeatedly that you suck <laughs> is, is not like real either. Right. right. It's just something your mind does. And so you have the choice you know, you can see it that way if you wanted to, or you can see it another way if you wanted to. It's about changing your perspective. And the, pers- the, the choice to change your perspective is yours, right? Even if we feel that it should be this, we can always say to ourselves, you know, that's the perspective. I can take a different perspective. Yeah. You know? And that's not, it's not easy, you know? And you're not deluding yourself, like... Yeah, I think... Oh, I mean, you are you are deluding yourself just by being alive, but right. like we can go on, we can go into that wormhole for a long, long time. But yeah. it's not, you know. But I think what you're saying is true, right? It's it's that. Well, but the ability for me to release restrictions around my meditation practice actually helped me meditate, do more meditation, right? On my um, on in a in a 24 hour period, right? If, if I was only sitting on a cushion for 20 minutes and then I got to check that box and I was super strict about it, then what the rest of the day do I just to get to be not mindful, exactly, you know? Exactly. And whereas now it's like, I'm trying to more bring it out into the world and wherever I can, I can do it. Um, but back to what you were saying as far as the meta and, and fa- you know, I think 
everything is our perception of it, which is why mindfulness is so important because once you realize that, at least for me, I have so much more ability to be vulnerable, to listen, to, to just show up in any way necessary because instead of already choosing my story or my reaction, I'm more waiting, observing, and then I'm able to respond, right? And um, so that to me, you know, meditation is the most important practice I have, but it's been really hard for me to release the boundaries around it. Mm-hmm. Um, well, so. we set up those boundaries for very good reasons, right? Those boundaries make us feel secure, yeah. right? And that is part of, you know, puncturing the veil of the illusion of life, Maya, right? Yeah. Is that we all set up these boundaries because we need them to feel stable. Um, and, you know, the, the big truth of the matter is, is that we set up those boundaries um, and they're no more real, you know, right. they're not real. Like, and so it, like, it's a fake stability. Um, and it's, it's hard to accept that, right? Because then all of a sudden you feel like you don't have an anchor and you feel kind of like you're drifting. But if you can actually take, if you can actually uh, understand that drift is the natural process and you can actually find comfort in the change and you can find comfort in the fact that there's something underneath you that your ego, that you're underneath your ego, underneath your discriminatory nature, underneath all that, that is unchanging, right? That's the point of meditation is to find that place that is unchanging and to know that place. Um, and then the change just rolls over you, right? It rolls yeah. over you. Yeah. I mean, and I would even say that it's not that you have a part of you that's unchanging. It's that you're just familiar enough, right, with with you. And so for me, like my essential self has definitely changed uh, with everything that's happened to me since my birth. But the fact of the matter is that the the illusions, everything that's that's jading my true self, those are changing in relation to the essential self too. Yeah, the right? big ass self, which so yeah, right. But but I think where the practice really is is that you're able to even you're able to laugh at it, right? And so we say in Buddhism, it's like, I see you, Mara. Come here for tea, and it's like, it's, it's probably the same seven things. Like for me, it's fear and scarcity and not being good enough, and but they manifest in a million different ways, and I have to look and I have to say, oh, that's you too, Mara. Come here you know, come have tea with me. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I don't actually think like in the procti and the, you know, like back to that, like, I actually don't think that there's like a constitutional self that stays. Um, it's just not the nature of our universe and the way energy works. And in, in my opinion, but, um, yeah. So back to how that was a big deal in 2009, when I started doing Buddhism, it was like to a lot of my yogi friends, like, wow, I don't understand. How are you not this type of meditation or that? And I, I don't think it matters. I think, the older I get and the more I study and I learn, the more types of movement I try, it's like vary what you do, try, and and be good, you know? I mean, look, the older you get, the harder it is to try and spend your time, your free time, your precious free time, trying to explain the world. <laughs> okay? I would be wrong. Instead anyway, of, don't listen to me instead about the world. Of, instead of living in the world and right. experiencing the world. It is. It takes so much time to try and come up with generalizations, right, about the universe, mm. right? Because because information keeps coming in, and you keep having to revise it. It takes a lot of fucking time. Trust me, I, yeah. I've done it every day for every year, every every day that I've been on this planet, and it's one of the things I struggle with the most. Is I want to keep saying to myself, this is this way, this is this way, this is this way. Well, certainty. When in fact that it isn't, right? Right, but back like, to what you were just saying oh, yeah. is about, no, about certainty and it makes us feel safe and we have an anchor. Yeah. And I think until, <laughs> yeah, it is. It's exhausting. But like you can't even realize that how exhausting it is until there's been something that's made you realize it, in my opinion. Well, and sure. maybe that's not true, but like you've both, you've experienced loss like I have. And, sure. and to me, you know, I was... I knew bad stuff happened and and I had capacity for compassion and things, but until my mom died, I really didn't get certain things that I get now. And I'm not saying you need to have an experience like that. Some people are born 
just knowing things, right? Like, mm-hmm. like it's very true that we are all born in different levels of enlightenment. And so some people don't need that, right? But for me, where I was in this lifetime, I needed that to really wake up to how unstable and not in a negative way either, just like the lack of uncertainty that actually exists on a daily basis and, and to be able to work with that. Um, and I think constantly I'm trying to grab on and hold on and say, this will not change, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but I at least now can laugh at it, right? Exactly. And say, hey, Mara, hi, <laughs> you know, come have tea with me. Let's let's see how this is manifesting today, you mm-hmm. know? Um, so... Um Tell us a little bit how we can find you on the web. On the things. On the things, yeah. Well, I don't do, um, I need to get better at the Insta and the Facebook. Facebook, I'm better at than Insta, but it's all soulful elephant. Um, Soulful, like I am a soulful person, an elephant, like the most amazing animal that exists. Um, And that's my website, soulfulelephant.com, and on the Instagram and on the Facebook. And I currently teach at Vita and past tense and fuse, but it's sad to say because how much I love DC and I love it here. Um, you know, my husband and I were going to be relocating to Florida in November and talking about putting this all together. My end goal is in the next few years to kind of develop a wellness mm-hmm. kind of sanctuary in Florida where I have yoga, Pilates, functional movement, a little bit of weight training and a, and a large meditation base too. Um, and so I want all those kind of in one, one area. And so that, it's not what's right or what's wrong. It's like what works for you. Mm-hmm. And that's my end goal is like, I just want to help people increase their quality of their life, you know? And I, I don't think that I know how to do that for everybody, but I do know what's worked for me. Mm-hmm. And it's all of that stuff. And we just don't have places, in my opinion, that that it's like so encouraged to, to do all of it, mm-hmm. you know, and that we need it all. So, so that's my end goal. So hopefully everyone will be able to come in a few years down to Florida and visit my studio down there, Soulful Elephant down there. Um, that sounds awesome. Yeah. Um, well, thanks for stopping in today, Liz. Oh, and come to my teacher training in Greece yes. or my retreat. This Where summer. can I find that information? On my website too, Soulful Elephant. And my cool. retreat stuff will be up for September and October. Um, and please reach out to me. If you don't know me, I'm actually a really welcoming nice person i usually respond so if you're interested in anything we said today definitely reach out also chris <laughs> reach out to chris he's amazing awesome i learn a lot from him <laughs> um all right so uh you've been listening to the dc yoga podcast um chris parkinson and uh we'll be back uh, in a couple of weeks with another episode uh, so take care until then bye-bye